Many of you are familiar with the phrase, how can something feel so right and be so wrong, right? Maybe you've said that before, maybe as a kid. It's, it's often the justification for some type of indulgence or sin, like how can eating my third piece of cake be so wrong? when it tastes so good, right? Uh, and, and you, there's other ways this is used. You know, how, you know those who, who have an affair are saying, why, why is it wrong? It feels so right. So you, m- many times you may think, how can something feel so right and be so wrong? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch this up a bit and introduce you to another phrase. It goes like this. How can something feel so wrong and be so right? How could something feel wrong and, 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 and actually be right? I was 22 years old. And at 22, I had something thrown my way that did not make sense for many years. And it's only as I can pull back over time and see it. I was 22 years old, and at 22, in the design by God, he made a situation where I became the sole caretaker of my grandmother at 22. Her health was failing. She needed a a variety of medical care. And I was clueless on how to care for her uh, medically. I was clueless on how to to just care for her, like feeding her. Uh, Clueless on how to take care of logistics, pay her bills, deal with uh, Medicare, Medicaid, stuff in Texas, insurance, uh, hospitals in and out, nursing homes in and out. I was so clueless how to help take care of this woman who spent a lot of her life taking care of me. I remember just sleepless nights thinking, okay, is she going to wake up in the middle of the night in her dementia and go and fall down and break something? And so I'm just these sleepless nights. And this is, uh, this is the thing that really bothers me the most is that there, 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 there wasn't anyone around. Everybody just seemed to disappear. There was no other family members that did anything. They were, they were far away, had no desire to intervene. And, and it was just me for, for most of my 20s caring for her. And I just want to tell you this. It felt wrong. I'm 22. I'm starting out my career. I'm going to grad school, which is seminary. I'm supposed to be launching in my life. And I am, I'm stuck taking care of this woman who I don't know what I'm doing. It just felt wrong. When people would ask me about it, and I try to explain it, and I say, I know it just seems wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. I should be doing something else. This feels wrong. And yet, God from his word, and I kept going back to it, kept telling me over and over again, no, this is not wrong. This is right. And this is exactly what I want you to do. So in God's eyes, it was right, no matter how I felt. And as I think about this, I, I see my life since then, and I see your life, and I just want to have this encouraging talk with you, sermon with you this morning, to tell you, you know what? Keep doing those things that may feel wrong. Because in the sight of God, chances are, they're probably right. And maybe you may be in a similar situation where you find yourself caring for someone who has maybe mental problems or physical problems, and you're like, you know, this just feels wrong. I should be moving on with my life, and I'm kind of doing this thing. No, no. It may feel wrong, but it's right. And, and, I, and I, I don't want to joke with you, you new parents who have babies. You ever just think to yourself, this is just wrong. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Sleep through the night, right? It just feels wrong for me to get up and care for you. It's natural to sleep, right? No, no. 
God has you in a place. That's your lot right now. It's okay. Be affirmed. And for those of you who are trying to live a life of purity and you say, you know what? This just seems wrong when there are so many options out there. And yet God is calling you to a life of holiness. And for those of you who are in a challenging and difficult marriage where you just feel like you are doing everything and they are doing nothing but hurting you, it just feels wrong to keep progressing and moving on in the marriage and, and loving them. And cur- it just feels wrong. And yet God said, you know what? Stick it out. I'll give you grace. You're in the right. So I don't know what your situation or scenario is of what you're dealing with, but there's probably something going on in your life right now where you're going, you know, this kind of just feels wrong. Now, what really is happening, it just feels, it's just hard, but you call it wrong because your flesh doesn't like it, right? Like, this is just wrong. And yet God says, no, no, I got you. Keep going. And that's basically the encouragement he gives the church we're going to look at today in Philadelphia. The church here in the book of Revelation, for those of you joining us this morning, we were in the book of Revelation, and Christ is speaking to seven different churches, and, and today he comes to the, uh, the church of Philadelphia. And uh, other like many of the other books and other churches in Revelation who are rebuked in some way, get this, this church is not rebuked. He, he, they're doing exactly what Christ wants them to do. They're holding strong to his word. They're patiently enduring. But they feel weak. They feel like they have little power. They're undergoing great persecution. Maybe they think, you know, maybe we picked the wrong team. And Christ assures them, nope, you're right where I want you. And the victory is coming. So let's look at Revelation uh, chapter 3 in the church of Philadelphia. All right, so let's go ahead and stand. And, and for those of you in the balcony, I, you know, it's been really hard to find parking this morning. So if you guys wouldn't mind scooting toward the middle so people can come and, and have seats. For those of you who are visiting us for Parents Weekend and, you're, and the church you go to back home has a massive parking lot, I'm sorry. <laughs> we lack parking big time, but we're glad you're here. So we'll make room for you. So Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated.
chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has been speaking to these uh, seven churches, words of confrontation and comfort. But in this situation right here, he just gives them encouragement. There's no, there's no confrontation. There's no condemnation here. Uh, let's start um, and pick it up in, in Revelation 3, verse 7. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Here's the church, Philadelphia, as in Asia Minor, not the Eagles, not the 76ers, okay? Not the Phillies, all right? This is in Asia Minor. It's founded uh, around uh, 189 BC and named the city of brotherly love because the founder had a strong love and loyalty for his brother. The city was like some of the other cities we have seen uh, with their worship of the emperor along with the worship of a variety of gods like Zeus, but their main uh, deity was Dionysus, the god of wine. One of the key aspects of the city that we'll hit on a little bit is they were prone to earthquakes, even, even big ones, and they had a, a devastating one, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but the church in Philadelphia is like many of the churches. It's suffering greatly under persecution, but unlike some of these other churches, Christ has no condemnation or confrontation for them, but only commendation and encouragement to keep going in their faith. And just like all of the dresses to the other churches, he gives some self-identifiers. He identifies himself in a certain way to minister to the church. Look again in verse 7 at this self-identification. This is the words of the Holy One, the True One. Not only is the Father holy and true, but God the Son is holy and true because he is God. The false prophets are not true. These, these false gods, Caesar is not true. But notice also in verse 7, that it says, Jesus is the holy and true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Earlier in in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, we see that Jesus has the keys of death and Hades, which indicates that Jesus has the key to say who gets into heaven and who is shut out of heaven. Uh, The concept is similar here as Jesus has the key of David, and he alone opens the door to eternal life, and no one can shut it. But he also has the authority to shut the door to eternal life that no one can open. And and the key of David is simply a reference to uh, Isaiah 22.22, where this servant, Elikim, is given authority over the king's house, where he can determine who comes in and out of the house. But all you basically need to know is Jesus is the one with the ultimate authority to determine who gets into heaven and who does not get into heaven. He is the only one with the key to heaven. The key Jesus has is very unlike the key to my office door. Right now, if you have a purse or in your pocket, right now, you have the key to my office door. Guarantee you. Any key will work at my office door. Now, for those of you who are thinking that's not very secure for me to tell you that, so for those of you who are aspiring theological students, feel free to come in and steal all my books. However, I do, for those of the rest of you, I have a couch and a, and a desk bought off a of Craigslist about eight years ago. Perhaps that may interest you as well. So you have the key to my office door. Now, most people you meet around the world would think 
they're going to heaven, right? Have you ever met a person? There's a few that would say, you know, I'm going straight to hell. Most of people think in this world that they have a key that they are going to get into heaven. Whatever that key is, maybe they think they're going to uh, have a, a, live a good life or do more good than they do bad. So most people think they're going to heaven. They have the key. But we are told here that only Jesus has the key to let people in and to keep people out. And it was supposed to be an encouragement to this church in Philadelphia. And it's an encouragement to them because the Jews in the area were shutting them out of the synagogue. And not only shutting them out, but saying, you know what? You Christians are, are, are separate from us. In fact, we're going to shut you out. You're the ones going to hell. You, we're not going to welcome you, but, but shut you out. And, and Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I have let you in. I am the one who is not going to shut you out. Now, I don't know how many of you, when you became a Christian, I don't know when you became a Christian, but I don't know how many of you, when you start walking with the Lord, uh, felt kind of shut out from certain people, relationships, and situations. I became a Christian at 19 when I started following Christ. The Lord intervened in my life. And that was right after my freshman year, during the summer. Well, the spring of my freshman year, I went through a pledge, a fraternity, and was accepted in. And I don't know how they they work on on your campus, but it was really hard to be a Christian in my fraternity. Maybe it's easy in yours. And and I don't remember much about my my pledge uh, semester, but there were six guys in my pledge class named Jason. In 1971, there must have been something going on with Jason. The parents just said, Jason. So anyway, six guys in my, in my pledge class. And then I go away for the summer. I get saved. And I come back. And I go in to hang out with the fraternity guys. And it's, it's not working out. They're great guys. They're not being mean to me or anything. But the, the environment was not working out. And, and I had to separate and, and, and leave. Because I, I just couldn't grow there for whatever reason. And, and, but after I left... There, were, there was pushback, there, there was this backlash, and these relationships that I had with the guys was, was never uh, the same again. And, and at that time, after I left, I felt wrong. I felt, wow, did I just do something terribly wrong? I, mean, I was made to feel wrong because I, I couldn't grow, and then I left, and I was made to feel wrong, and, and I felt kind of shut out, and yet that, that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. I made decisions so that I could grow in Christ, and in that environment, I couldn't. So no matter how wrong I may have felt, it was the right thing to do. That's what's going on here. Christ is telling this church, no, no, you may feel weak, little power, but you're in the right. Uh, Look what he says to them in verse 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have there it is. I know that you have but little power, and you have, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Christ says, I have opened the door to eternal life. It's yours by faith, and no one can shut it. No one can keep you out of eternal life. But, notice again, they, they have little power. They feel weak. They don't feel strong. They are not an, an epic church dreaming these radical dreams to impact the world and go be a, a, a world changer. It says they have little power. And they're not commended for their epic results by their, but by their labor. Isn't it interesting to me that Jesus' scorecard is different? 
His discord card is different. He says, you know what? I commend you because you have kept my word and not denied my name. And I know many of you have come here from different churches, and when you leave here, most people do leave Evanston. They will go, and you will be part of many churches. And I want to tell you this. Do not be impressed by the size of the church. Do not be impressed by the programs. Do not be impressed by the smoke machines or the light show or the architecture. Christ is impressed with a church that holds to the word and does not deny his name. The faithful church is not commended because they have these great epic results that all the world can see, but by their faithful labor. Verse 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. These are not anti-Semitic statements, as Jesus was a Jew and and his disciples were all Jews. What, What we're talking about here in this context is that the Jews were persecuting Christians. And you'll often see that in the book of Acts. We, we also saw it in the church of Smyrna. And, and Satan is behind these attacks of the, the Christians to destroy them. It happened in the life, in the ministry of Jesus. And it's happening with these Jews here in Revelation attacking the believers. And Satan is behind it. But what's really cool about this verse here is that there's going to be a great reversal where many of these Jews will be converted to Christ. Look again at the end of verse 9. Look at it again. It says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And I don't think this is a bowing and submission of judgment, but more likely, this seems like some of the Jews who have aggressively persecuted these Christians will one day actually be converted. And the Bible actually talks about this. So if you've read the book of Romans and, and Romans chapter 10 and 11, it talks about Jews, uh, even at the end times, many, many Jews being converted and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. There will be a day of these converted Jews will see that the Lord loves the Gentiles as well. Now, what's encouraging about this is I really think that Jesus is encouraging them for not joining forces with those who are persecuting, but staying separate from them, staying firm in Christ, and one day those who are actually persecuting will be converted. The Christians do not have to give in to avoid persecution, but stand strong and see others convert it. But I'm sure the temptation to blend in was great. Remember when I told you about three weeks ago that I took uh, my, uh, several of my kids to Six Flags Fright Night? Remember that story I told you? Uh, my, my, I, I, did, I didn't know it was so scary. But many of my kids were very scared uh, of the creepy clowns. In fact, two of my kids are really scared of the creepy clowns. My six-year-old daughter and my... Um, 12-year-old daughter, just horrified of these creepy clowns, didn't stop talking about it. They were screaming so loud and much tears. But anyway, it was quite a fun time, uh, dad time. So, and that's all they could talk about for a while is the creepy clowns. And so so it was was Halloween last weekend, and these two same kids, six-year-old and 12-year-old, they had nice, cute, sweet costumes. Uh, One of them was a sweet little bunny. 
and, and one was a, a very cute unicorn. Um, but I kid you not, uh, I kid you not, these same two kids, uh, for whatever reason, decided to switch their costumes. Do we even have that picture? Do we, do we have that picture? Uh, oh, you can't even see it, but see, that these, those are the same two kids, and if you can't see it, bro, they're dressed up like creepy clowns. <laughs> no joke. And, and it's kind of like, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, right? And th- 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 that was what was going on with these two. And, and, and that's kind of what the persecution that was coming down on the Christians here in Philadelphia, and they did not join the persecutors to blend in. But what they did, they held firm to see some of the persecutors converted later in life, which is, which is pretty awesome. Uh, l- let's keep going. With, this, this even gets better. Let's keep going. Verse 10. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is saying, since the church has patiently endured in faith, then they will be kept from the coming trial. I think you guys can handle this, so let's go ahead and do this. I I think you can handle this. Uh, Occasionally... If you've been here long enough, you know I, I take sermon timeouts. I'm going to go ahead and take a sermon timeout real quick because I want to explain something to you. Okay, so timeout. Did you notice in this verse that it talked about a trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth? I think Jesus has something larger going on here than just a local persecution. I think this trial that's coming upon the whole world is likely a reference, okay, stick with me, is likely a reference to this end-time tribulation, that there is going to be a period before Christ, uh, before the end wraps up, uh, there's going to be this period called the tribulation of God's great wrath and judgment on those who dwell on the earth. And when it says those who dwell on the earth, it's usually a reference to unbelievers. Now, the question is this, now, uh, just stick with me. The question is this. Some think that the church will be removed from this earth prior to the worldwide um, tribulation. Now, I I I haven't thrown any terms around, so bear with me. I'm going to throw them around really quick. All right. Those who hold to this position is called the pre-tribulational view. It's the idea that the church goes up uh, with Christ, and, and they're not going to be here, and then God pours out his wrath uh, on, on humankind. And perhaps this can be seen in John 17, 5, where Jesus says, um, I, I, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Uh, let's take that one off for a second. Where Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. But there's also a post-tribulational position, now put that one up, 17, 5, where, where Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So some believe the church will be gone, raptured before Christ comes back, and some believe the church will, will stick around through the tribulation. That's where Christ will come back after the tribulation, post-tribulation. Now, there are some who believe in like a mid-tribulation, that the church will be here for a little while, and then they're raptured up, and there's others that hold to like a pre-wrath position. Now, for those of you who are totally and absolutely confused, great, I'm with you. We are going to have a class coming this winter that's going to dive into all the details that you may have grown up hearing these terms about tribulations and millennium, but just know that the church, whether they're here or not... 
you're here right now, and the call for you is to patiently endure, no matter what, not to blend in. All right, so that was the timeout. Let's time back in and finish the rest of the passage. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This crown or this victory wreath was given as a prize for the winners in a game. You can think about our Olympics getting a gold medal or our our World Series champs getting the the, the trophy. Uh, the, The crown spoken of here is eternal life. If the believers remain firm in Christ, they will receive the crown of life. He will give them eternal life. Those who are true believers will press on in their faith, and only true believers press on in their faith. And when they do, they will receive a crown. Now, often what I have noticed as I read the churches in Revelation, and I look at the churches and see even our church in America and some churches around the world, there's often this temptation to do this. There's often a temptation to hold fast to Christ, right? And also to blend into the world a little bit. It's like, it's like we, we have Christians who want to hold firm to Jesus, but we want the world to think we're cool, Right? You ever have friends like that? You're like, you know, we just want them to think we're cool. Because how's anybody ever going to get saved unless they know that Christians are cool, right? And so we hold firm, and yet we want people to think we're, we're cool. And, and I just want to tell you that you, it's, you, I, don't, I don't think you can have both. I, I really don't. I, I don't think you can blend into the world and also hold firm to God. I, I don't think you can have both. And it reminds me of what my, my son, he was telling me this past week. He's a senior in high school. He was talking to me about senior ditch day. Did you guys have senior ditch day back in the day? Well, back in the, well, I don't even know when I went to high school. I guess back in the 80s, we would have senior uh, uh, ditch day where seniors would decide to skip a day of school. And back in my day, uh, when the seniors would skip, they would miss assignments and it would be an unexcused absence and then they would have to face the consequences. Well, apparently, as he was telling me what their senior ditch day looks like is that mommy and daddy call in and say, Johnny's a little sick today with some sniffles. He's not going to make it in. So that's how rebellious the seniors are at his school. Mom and dad call in so they don't have to face the consequences of ditching school, right? And so what, 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 what I think is going on is that we often have Christians who say, you know what, I, I, want, I, want, I want Jesus, I want him, I, I, I love him, but I, I want the world to like me too, and I, I want eternal life, and, and I want the wrath or discipline of Jesus, but, but I want people to like me, and so we think there's going to be this blending in, and, and Jesus is like, you know, that, that's not going to be the case. Those who are true followers of Christ will face pushback. You will, to some extent, face persecution depending on where you live. And that's what the church is facing here. And yet they're holding firm to Christ no matter the consequences. And Jesus is encouraging them. He's saying, look, by faith in my son Jesus, you will be rewarded with eternal life as you hold firm till the end. And then Christ finishes it up. He finishes it up in verse 12. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. This is great. This is, 
Jesus is dealing with their situation. He knows that there's earthquakes here. This is a, a place that's uh, known to really big earthquakes. And they had a really big one. And when the city was rebuilt, it was temporarily renamed Neo-Caesarea. And, and that means Caesar's new city. And so Jesus wants to talk about a new city as well. But look at the greater name that Jesus gives his saints. Did you, did you catch, catch it there? He says that they will be called in the city, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. We already saw back in chapter 2 where he gives them this special secret name. And now they're, they're named the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And in this city, we're told that the foundations will not shake. And there'll be no disaster. In fact, those who press on in their faith will dwell there with God forever. As it says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Did you know that? You are a pillar in an everlasting temple, in an everlasting city, with an everlasting God. There is this new Jerusalem coming that you will be a part of in the presence of God forever. And you, in your special name that Christ gives you in his special city, you'll be with God forever. And, and I know when you walk out of here and you go in our lobby, you'll see names, uh, uh, plaques of people on the wall who, who donated money to build this, this beautiful facility. And that's the idea, is that that will be you. You will be this pillar in the presence of God, worshiping him and enjoying him forever. And that comes to the one who presses on by faith. Look again. Look again at the very last verse. He who has an ear... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It may feel wrong to keep pressing on when the world keeps pushing back. But look at the reward to come in heaven with the Lord forever. And as you feel the pushback, as you feel the tensions, as you have these daily interactions where it just feels like, I can't do it anymore, don't bail patiently endure entrusting yourself to the one who has saved you by shedding his blood, reconciling you to the Father through faith. Don't bail. Patiently endure. Get this. You don't have, there's, there's no pressure on you to be cool. There's no pressure on you to be epic. There's no pressure coming from me. There's no pressure coming from Jesus. Just, just, tr- just forget trying to be cool and epic and just patiently endure following Christ, no matter what it feels like. And when it, it may feel wrong at times, like you picked the wrong team, just know there's affirmation from the Father that you are in the right. There is reward in Christ in heaven. You get his relationship now, clothed in his righteousness now by faith and patiently endure until you're with him. So as we, as we pull back and as we, before we even go to a time of prayer, and before we come to a time of communion, I want you to just pause for a moment and examine your life and just say, you know, what are some ways I'm trying to be cool? I mean, most of you are not going to say that, but what are some ways that you're trying to blend in so that others don't mess with you? What are some ways that you need to keep doing that thing that feels wrong, but you know is right? Basically, what are some ways that you need to keep patiently enduring no matter what. So let's just, I'm going to give you some time. Maybe you've been so rushed this week and so rushed this weekend. I'm going to give you some time to pause and privately, 
you can actually talk to the Lord about those things. So let's just pause and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you now, you see our hearts, you know what's going on. And as you're sitting there right now in these pews, um, go ahead and talk to God. Tell him where it is hard to keep going. Tell him, tell him those things in your, in your life that feel hard or even feel wrong. Tell him what's, what's going on. Father, minister your grace right now. Let your son or daughter know that you see what's going on. Let them know that you care about them. Let them know that even in their weakness, where they don't feel strong at all, that that's where your power is at. Affirm the men and women here who are walking in righteousness. Affirm them who are making choices even to care about someone who's difficult. Encourage those in here who are are persevering in a difficult relationship, whether it's a marriage or with a difficult child um, or even a difficult parent. Affirm them to keep loving and keep moving forward. And Lord, for those who are being tested and tried at work or at school for their faith in Jesus, just encourage them to keep going. And Lord, as we come to this time of uh, the table of communion, It's like we come to the altar, right? And there's forgiveness. There's grace. And I just ask that you'd meet us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.